Well, I'm thankful. I mentioned last week that uh, I'm grateful for the Reformation. One of the, the reasons I'm really grateful for the Reformation is because it revived congregational singing, which was essentially gone. It, it was dead. It was no longer present in the life of the church during the Reformation. Martin Luther called the church back to singing the wonderful songs and hymns and praises to God, and he in fact penned many, many hymns. We are continuing on with our series in honor of the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. We kicked it off last week as we celebrated that anniversary date, and I mentioned that we'd be kind of heading, our, heading into a series on the five solas, what formed the, the central, the core beliefs of the Reformation. They were the key battlegrounds for the Reformation. The five solas, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. These were the formative doctrinal convictions that drove the Reformation. I I reminded you last week, and if you weren't here last week and you didn't have an opportunity uh, to hear a little bit about the Reformation, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that message that really does set the, the stage and the foundation for what we're launching into over the next five weeks together. Now, last week I mentioned that this Reformation occurred because what was originally formed had become deformed, and it needed to be reformed, to be made right again, to be brought back to its original purpose. And I mentioned also that the idea of the Protestant Reformation, that it was a protest against the moral and theological abuses of the church of the time. Now, it may have seemed last week like we were singling out Catholics. That's because we were. And, and I know, uh, but I want to qualify that for you this week. Listen, this isn't some kind of a malicious attack. In fact, one of the, the things, the very heart of the Reformation, the very heart of, of Martin Luther himself, who was a Catholic monk, his desire was to rescue and save the Catholic Church, to pull them back to what the Bible said. You see, this was not essentially and fundamentally about attacking the Catholic Church and the Catholic system. This was ultimately about a recovery of the truth that had been so veiled and lost in the fog of confusion of the day. There was no other church. Can you just think about that for a minute? Not not at this place at this time. There was the Eastern Orthodox Church, but at this place and this time, it it was the Catholic Church. There weren't Protestant churches on each and every corner that you drove, as you drove down the street. There was no Protestant evangelical movement. It was birthed at this moment in time. Luther stood up and stood for the truth. And most fundamentally, look, he he wasn't fighting over trivial doctrinal issues. He was fighting over the core central issues of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The very truth that saves was the thing that had been lost. And medieval theology had taught that you could achieve during this time a state of grace. I mentioned last week that they saw grace more like a thing that empowered you to now be be able to earn your salvation. It was like that spiritual Red Bull. It gave you a spiritual shot in the arm. It allowed you the energy necessary to earn or merit your own salvation before God. That saving grace could be infused into any individual by participating specifically in those seven sacraments. Again, we looked at those last week. But I want you to see that in that, the pressure and responsibility was ultimately placed upon the back of the individual to not only access God's grace, but ultimately to attain God's grace. For Luther, as he struggled through this concept in his own heart, trying to earn his salvation, trying to do whatever he could to make himself right before God. 
It ended up leaving him more distant, more discouraged, and more ultimately devastated internally. He felt the crushing weight and burden of trying to earn a salvation he knew he ultimately could not merit. The more he tried, the more he realized the impossibility. And the word of God affirms for us that salvation is from the Lord, Psalm 37, 39. It originates with him and is given freely as a gift by him. Grace has been defined as unmerited favor. It is that which cannot be earned by definition. It can't be worked for in any sort of way. And the reformers recovered a proper understanding of the grace of God in salvation that they saw throughout the pages of Scripture. The reformers weren't the first ones to argue for God's grace alone in salvation. They pushed back even into church history to demonstrate that not only did Augustine argue the very things that Martin Luther would eventually argue in the Reformation, but they flowed right out of the writings specifically of the Apostle Paul. As I mentioned last week, Luther debated the representatives of the Roman Catholic Church on multiple occasions, and he argued through tracts and books. His arguments with a man named Erasmus led to the publication of Luther's most popular book entitled The Bondage of the Will, and it was here that Luther told Erasmus that he had addressed the vital issue. He had hit the central nerve of the debate, and he called this issue, if you remember last week, the hinge on which all turns. He saw man's inherent inability, and he saw what was so desperately needed for all humanity, God's grace alone, sola gratia, and it is to that which we turn this morning in Ephesians chapter 2. So take your Bibles and open to Ephesians chapter 2. As we look at verses 1 through 7 together, if you don't have a Bible, the rushers are going to walk to the front, and they're going to walk towards the back. Feel free to just raise your hand in the air. We want to make sure a Bible makes its way across to you. Again, another thing that was recovered in the Reformation was the Bible translated into the language of the people, and the people themselves being allowed to not only hold a copy of God's Word, but to read God's Word for themselves. Grace alone is one of the fundamental issues of the Reformation. It is one of the fundamental issues for the church today. And Paul writes explicitly about grace alone. He begins in chapter 2, verse 1. Let's read it together. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. 
This text reminds us of what the reformers fought so desperately to teach the church of the day and to call the church back to the concept that we need God's grace alone for salvation. So as we work through this text, let me first remind you of this truth. We need God's grace alone because of the human condition. This is the reason why grace alone is so critical for spiritual salvation, spiritual life, and Paul gets right into it. He begins to define and unpack the human condition in the most graphic of terms. He, in one sense, leaves no stone unturned. He drives at the heart of the issue, and here's what he says, and you were dead. You were dead. This is the definitive statement on the human condition. If you were to look for one word that defined the human condition apart from Jesus Christ, apart from God, it is this one word. It is the most summary form of the human condition. We, apart from Christ, are dead. If we view fallen humanity, listen, merely as being disabled or sick with some disease, we will never fully understand the riches of God's grace, the way the Bible intends for us to understand them. But when we see ourselves as God sees us, the truth is sobering. We are dead. We are spiritual stillborns, rebels against the almighty, the most holy God, the creator of heaven and earth. Listen, if you get this this morning, if you get this, you will never ever have an overinflated view of your own goodness and righteousness and abilities. And by saying we're dead, by the way, Paul does not mean that we are somehow in danger of death, but that we are living in a constant, ongoing state of death. As John Calvin, the great reformer, once said, that this death is real and present death. This is the universal reality for humanity apart from Christ. It's linked here, notice in verse 1, he says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, remember? He's unpacked the glories of God's grace and the power of God in the previous section. He's, he's really set the table for everything he's going to begin to unpack in the rest of this book. I find it interesting that the church often needs to be reminded of who they were apart from Christ. I think we can quickly forget the blessings of knowing God, the blessings of being in the family of God, and it's important to kind of go back and remember this is who I once was, and that's what Paul says. He says, don't forget that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Those words remind us that we were not walking on the path of righteousness. We had stepped off the path of righteousness. That what's, that's what is meant by the word trespass, that we walked in sin, we missed the mark of holy perfection, not one of us was living the life that we should live, not none of us could achieve that perfect condition. And Paul slams these two words together with great intentionality, they're really ultimately synonymous, they mean the same thing, but they are intended to give us a comprehensive account of human evil. In combining these two words here, Paul is essentially emphasizing that this is no mere slip-up. It's no mere failure in our lives. This is not some kind of a temporary condition that we find ourselves in. This death that is defined by our trespasses and sins, it is the willful, listen, it is the willful rebellion that we have chosen. We all fall short of the glory of God. 
This is not to suggest, as some of you may be thinking right now, that every one of us leads equally uh, sinful lives. By the grace of God, even in our fallen condition, we don't live as sinfully as we could. There are degrees of sinfulness for sure, but this does tell us, however, that we are all equally, listen, in a state of sin, equally separated from God and from spiritual life. And as a result, we are dead spiritually. Here's what that means. Spiritually alienated from the life of God that we were created to enjoy. Spiritually alienated from the relationship of God, with, with God that we were intended to enjoy and to live in. Apart from Christ, we are the walking dead. We just don't know we're dead. To be dead is to be spiritually unresponsive. Practically, this describes a life that is blind to the glory of Jesus Christ. It is deaf to the voice of the Holy Spirit. There is no love for God. There is no understanding of true joy in Him and purpose that's found in Him. There is no longing for fellowship with Him or His people. We are an unresponsive people. We are as unresponsive to God spiritually as a corpse is responsive to true life. Understanding, listen, the devastating reality of our sinful human condition helps us to understand the devastating reality of our sinful solutions. You see, we are ultimately left, if we understand our condition, we're left to wrestle with our own hearts and to wrestle with the kind of solutions we try to propose to fixing ourselves. And, and we try, don't we? We try all kinds of ways. Mankind has come up with all kinds of systems and rituals and practices and sacrifices. Even as Christians, we often try to earn God's favor, merit God's kindness through our righteous actions. But our man-made solutions, listen, they're as helpful as seeing a person who is drowning in a pool and leaning over to the side and saying, Swim! Stop drowning! It's really helpful, isn't it? Look how gracious I am to give such good counsel. It leaves you trying harder, doing more to save yourself, ultimately realizing the inability to do so. Our sinful human condition means that the morally upright mother needs Jesus as much as the immoral inmate on death row. Lazarus in the Bible, that great story in John chapter 11, the friend of Jesus, Lazarus couldn't raise himself back to life. In fact, he had no part whatsoever in his own resurrection. Paul's point in saying that we are spiritually dead is to remind us that neither do we. You can't do anything. You are wholly dependent upon the grace of God alone. You desperately need the grace of God to be lavished upon you, showered upon you for your salvation. It gets worse in one sense, if it can get any worse. You see, Paul begins to unpack this idea of what it means to be spiritually dead. And so falling underneath this category, he really pulls out three dis distinct kind of aspects to our spiritual deadness. And here's the first one. It's not only that I was dead, I was deceived. I was totally and completely deceived. He says here in verse 2, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. He says we walked in these sins. 
In our spiritual death, it was not just that we did not experience life with God, we experienced the ongoing death of walking in sin. We lived in total, flagrant, willful rebellion against our Creator. Our eyes blind, however, to the condition, not only by the deadness of our souls, but by the world system that we were trapped under. And by the ruler of that world system, Satan, Paul begins to unfold our condition. He says, if we're following the course of this world, we talked a last or a few weeks back about the three adversaries that we face. The three greatest adversaries every person, every Christian faces is the world, the devil, and the flesh. In this one verse, we see both the world and the devil at work and aligned together on the same mission. In the very next verse, we're going to see the danger of the flesh. But here, this world system traps us. That's what you need to see here. And this is Satan's design. He has orchestrated a world system that keeps us trapped, living a lie, living in blindness to the spiritual reality. Believing, here's the key to Satan's successful deceptions. Listen, believing we are free, we're actually enslaved. Like an animal that is born in captivity, who doesn't realize that they live in a cage. The world is the value system that surrounds us, which is alien to God. And it permeates, it dominates, and it dictates our our non-Christian society. It holds people in captivity. Just think through the world system that we live in, just, just in summary form, the pervasive humanism that is embodied in our world system, the materialism, the secularism, the atheism, and every other ism that our world celebrates as a direct assault against the God of the universe. It is pumped at us from every angle and at a relentless pace. Every ism and worldly philosophy is like another bar being anchored into our prison cell door keeping us captive to what is ultimately empty, what is ultimately lifeless, what is ultimately destructive. All the while, this is the subtlety of this deception, all the while giving the appearance of just the opposite. Not just our behavior is in view when you think of Satan and how he wants to use this world system. Oftentimes we, we always, you know, there are certain people who gravitate towards, you know, the concept that the devil made me do it. All my sin needs to be attributed to the devil. That our behavior is is ultimately in view. That Satan just wants you to be the worst kind of person you could possibly be. That is partially true. You know, the greatest battleground, though, is not over your behavior. It's over your beliefs. The way you think is far more important than how you behave because the way you think ultimately drives and impacts how you behave. In fact, the Word of God is clear on this. In 2 Corinthians, just listen, chapter 10, verses 3 through 5, listen to what Paul says. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, physically he's talking about, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Our battle is not an earthly, physical battle. He says, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. You say, what are the strongholds that the enemy uses? He goes on to explain. We destroy, here's the strongholds, arguments and every lofty opinion that is raised against the knowledge of God. And we take, listen to this, every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. It is all about the way we think. And this world system drives us constantly to think antithetical to God. 
opposed to God, living not for God and for his glory, living for ourselves and our glory, living not for the pleasure of God, but living for the pleasure of the here and now. Promoting and upholding all of this, the word of God tells us, is the prince of the power of the air. That is Satan himself, the ruler, the God of this world. He is producing a spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The essence of God hating that permeates our sinful fallen condition. Satan and the demonic realm, just consider this for a minute, they actually inhabit at this very moment the very same realm as fallen sinful humanity. Oftentimes I'll ask people where Satan lives and people's default answer because we watch so many movies and television is that he lives in hell. Eh. He doesn't live in hell and neither do the demons that have allegiance to him that are living to destroy our very existence and our eternal destiny. They coexist here. Now, we don't see the spiritual realm, but all around us, there exists a spiritual realm of demonic, disobedient, once servants of God. And as much as possible, they control the world system, and they do it with excellence. The spirit of disobedience that characterizes them, think about this, characterizes the world they rule and those they deceptively blind and enslave. Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4, in their case, the God of this world was, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Humanity is deceived into believing that they are free when they are truly a slave to one master, sin. Satan rules a world system that caters to our desires and keeps, captive, uh, keeps us captive to our passions. And that's why grace alone is so necessary. We need grace alone because not only were we dead, not only were we deceived. Listen, I was depraved. Paul begins to unfold in even more detail how devastating the human condition is apart from Christ. And as we've looked at the world and the devil, now he drives hard at what I believe is our greatest enemy of all, our flesh. He unpacks this in verse 3. He says, among whom we all once lived. Listen, this is universal. Everybody is included. There are no exceptions. In the passions, listen to this. This is how we all once lived. In the passions of our flesh. That's short form for saying that we lived for the sinful pleasures of our fallen flesh our fallen condition. Then he adds to that, this, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Can can you see how pervasive the concept of depravity is in the human condition? I mean, it seeps in everywhere in the human condition, in the body, in the mind, the flesh, the desires, the passions. This characterizes humanity. Sin, listen, is not just what we do, it's who we are and what we love. Sin is a pervasive power that controls and defines human beings. It is something that dominates our personal existence and offers no means of escape. Luther saw that sin had infected the deepest recesses of our hearts, 
shaping what we want and love. And as a result, he stated that we never, listen to this, we never naturally in our fallen human condition want God. Just think of Romans chapter 3. There are none righteous, no, not one. No one seeks after God. It's been said that Romans 1 through 3 actually is an exposition of Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. But don't miss that, that the picture of not naturally wanting God, our natural condition, our fallen condition, does not want God. And that means this, listen, that we freely choose to do the things we want. The whole discussion that Luther had with Erasmus was over this idea that our will was ultimately free. And Luther argued, no, our our will is in bondage to sin. We're trapped and enslaved, and we can't do anything. And Erasmus argued, no, 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 we're not ultimately enslaved. There is some good in us, and there is a way that we can break ourselves free. We're not as enslaved as you try to claim we are, Luther. He fought to protect this idea that we ultimately have some sort of free will. That's what this issue is over. So hear me say this again. Here, what the text, I believe, argues is that we freely choose to do the things we want. That may include living a life of outward morality and respectability. But listen, left to ourselves, we will never choose God. Because we do not naturally want or desire him. Our passions naturally are not for him. Erasmus took it that our problem was ultimately, you think of how did Erasmus wrestle through this? Ultimately, Erasmus said our problem as Christians or as unbelievers, excuse me, is that we're we're essentially spiritually lazy. And we, all we really need to do is pull ourselves up with our own strength. We need to just wrestle through these things. We need to become more devoted. We need to become more disciplined. We're spiritually sluggish and sleepy. The church at the time taught that man was not fundamentally bad or sinful, but that man was actually born fundamentally good. Obviously, they didn't have two-year-olds back then. The reformers argued that man is a slave to sin, and they weren't, like I said, this isn't the first argument to pop up for this idea of depravity. They simply grabbed a hold of what they saw was biblically faithful and would have been argued in the past by those who were faithful to the word of God. They saw that man is a slave to sin, that there is no freedom of the will, not in the way that we often think of freedom. But this bondage is willful. Here's what you have to see, bondage to sin. It is willful bondage to sin. The sinner can't will righteousness, but sins necessarily. They argued, as I believe Paul does here, that man is ultimately sick to the core. The passions and desires, the very things that define us are sick to the core, totally depraved. This idea of being totally depraved ultimately comes from the understanding of original sin. The reformers argued that the guilt and the condition of Adam's sin as our head was imputed to all of mankind. They saw Adam as the head of the human race. The term is often framed as the federal head, the federal headship of Adam over the human race. In other words, he was our representative. He acted as our representative when he sinned. And Romans 5, 12 through 21, really lays this out for us in full form. 
But the basic idea was that here we are, we're sinners by nature because of Adam's sin, ultimately because of Adam's sin, to which a lot of us in our hearts respond, well, that's not right, right? Well, that's not fair. I would have picked someone better to stand in my place than Adam. No, there was no one else. Like, literally. Plus, Adam, if you think about this, you're like, well, we sh- why didn't God put forward a better candidate? Adam was perfect. Literally perfect. No sin. You've got to think about this, how, how, how this can work, why he is our head, and then why Christ becomes our head in the same way. Why how you, in the same way that Adam's sin is imputed to all of us and all of us become sinful, in the, the same way Christ's righteousness is imputed to those who are in Christ, and we become righteous because of him. Adam was perfect. He was sinless, and he actually lived in the presence of God. Perfect fellowship and communion. Think about this. Not one sin, and yet, and yet, he still chose to rebel against God in his perfect condition. Someone was like, well, I would have probably done better than Adam. No, you couldn't have. Even being perfect, Adam still wanted to be God. It could be argued that Adam ultimately was, uh, and Eve, together, apart from Jesus Christ, they were the only human beings who truly experienced free will. No human fallen condition to affect their decisions at all. Uncorrupted by a sin nature. Truly free in an ongoing sense to choose God. To live in communion with him already living in that perfect fellowship with God, and he still chose sin. Not one of us would have fared any better. His guilt and corruption as a result was imputed to all of humanity as he stood on our behalf as our head, ruler of God's creation. Sin now imputed to all of humanity. Everyone that is ever born is born into a state of spiritual corruption, total depravity. And so there's this strange tension that we live in in our fallen condition that we are both free and a slave simultaneously. You see, we are free in the sense that we sin willfully according to the desires of our flesh. Nobody forces us to sin. We do so because we desire it, because we want it, because that is the burning passion of our life. However, sinful desires stem from a corrupt nature, and therefore we sin out of necessity. The title Luther gave his work called On the Bondage of the Will commonly throws people off, and and they try to grapple with this and say, but but I I make free choices, don't I? Is, Is Luther saying that I can't do what I want? The truth is, we only and always do what we want. Don't miss this. We only and always do what we want. We freely choose to do the things we do, and in that sense, our wills are entirely free. You are free, apart from Christ. Listen, you are free to choose whatever sin you want. That's free will. That's the free will we have because of our fallen sinful condition. You see how important it is to grasp the gravity of the fallen condition and why grace becomes so necessary? 
We can't choose other than sin. And you say, well, what about the good things I try to choose for myself? They are never done for the right motivation and the right reason. They're never done ultimately for the glory of God. And so therefore, they fall into the category, as Isaiah says, as righteousness that is but filthy rags before God. All the things you think you can earn apart from God's grace, all the things you think you can do to earn your salvation, they ultimately end up being an offering of filthy rags that get you nowhere. And so that is the sense in which our wills are entirely free. However, listen, you do not choose what to want. You see, underneath our wills, again, directing and governing our choices lie our hearts with all of their passions and desires. That's what Paul says here in verse 3. This is who we are. The heart of man plans his way. You see, when faced with even the most basic of choices, let me give you a point of a helpful, I hope, illustration to help cement this in your hearts. Let's just say the most basic of choices. Let's say you want to choose between a bacon cheeseburger versus a plate of celery. In that moment, you will find yourself wanting one thing and not the other. I hope I know what that is. But listen, your choice will ultimately be determined by your desire. And those who choose the celery over the burger don't negate this rule. They choose it, listen, because they desire to be a vegetarian for some strange reason. Or because they have a tragic, tragic intolerance and they don't desire to be sick. Or because the desire to be healthy has trumped the desire for immediate deliciousness. That is why we choose to sin. It's not because we're forced into it. As Luther said, when man does not have the spirit of God, he does not do evil against his own will. As if he were taken by the scruff of the neck and forced to do it. And it's not because we neutrally weigh the odds of each decision, some kind of a libertarian understanding of free, free will, where everything is ultimately equal. No. We don't choose what seems most sensible in the ultimate sense, especially spiritually. It's because we are carrying out the desires of the body. We choose sin because that is what we want, and it's what we want because it's who we are, and it's ultimately leading us to the greatest, worst condition of all. You see, the sinful human condition leads us to this, that I was damned. I was damned. I was a sinner by nature. I was a sinner by choice. And the picture here, listen, is that we were, we're not able to claw our way out of this condition. And he says, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. All of humanity apart from Christ lives in this place of condemnation, of damnation, sitting under the heavy weight of God's wrath that will ultimately fall when they die physically. This is where sin finds its final and complete end. For the wages of sin is death. Final, listen, permanent, spiritual death. Here's what that is, listen. Alienation from the love and life of God. Alienation from the grace and blessings of God. Alienation from the joy and fellowship with God. That is the eternal destiny. Listen, sitting then and bearing under the full weight of God's wrath, punishment for sin. 
And God's wrath, listen, we, we sometimes have a hard time processing just what God's wrath ultimately is and what it looks like, and, and we wrestle with how God's wrath functions with God's love, and the answer is God's holiness and God's justice. But God's wrath is not like our wrath. Our wrath is petty. Our wrath is trivial. Our wrath is vengeance and wanting to get our way, and our wrath is sinful. God's wrath is not like our wrath. It's not petty. It's not trivial. It is God's personal, righteous, constant hostility to evil, his settled refusal to compromise with it, and his resolve instead to condemn it. Apart from Christ, this is what awaits every single person. More than that, this is what we all deserve. Just, just, just hear this for a second. This is what we all deserve. And oftentimes in the debate with Erasmus and Luther, they go back and forth in this, and, and Erasmus was so concerned that God would choose to save some and not others, and it ultimately would say, that's not fair. And Erasmus would look to Luther and say, Luther, let God be good. And Luther would respond back, let God be God. This is what Paul argues in Romans 9 through 11. Let God be God. And it's not fair. Listen, we don't want what's fair. What's fair isn't that God saves some. What's fair is that God saves no one. The beauty of grace isn't that God chooses to save some. The beauty of grace is that God chooses to save anyone. That any one of us is saved is a miracle of God's grace because if, if God wanted to, he could leave us and be just and holy and righteous and perfect. He could leave us to death in our sins. He could leave us to experience the full weight of his wrath. And that is the condition that we were in before Christ. And it's at this point, listen, that we have to understand that this is just punishment. The eternal wrath of God is just punishment for our unjust rebellion. And if we stopped here, if we stopped right here, can you imagine, somebody said, well, why don't you just preach verses 1 through 3? Yeah, and, and then the wrath of God is upon us. Let's pray. But can you, just, can you grasp what Paul is doing here, how strategic this is? If we stopped here, this horrifying reality would crush our souls into utter and eternal despair. It would cripple us if we knew this is what was in store for every one of us. And it's at this point that the Spirit of God wants us to realize how truly devastating our condition is, how devastating the human condition is. It leaves us in this place saying, well, what hope is there for us? I can't do anything. I'm damned to eternal wrath of God. And at this very moment, with utter despair hovering over our hearts and over our souls, God comes in with two of the most beautiful and profound words in all of Scripture, but God... You are lost and hopeless. And some of you are sitting in here and you're wrestling with your heart because maybe you walked in, you don't know God. You don't have salvation in Christ Jesus. And the full weight of God's word has just hit you like a ton of bricks. And you're saying, well, what can I do? The answer is you can do nothing but God. But God. You see, we need God's grace alone to produce our new position. We need God's grace alone to produce our new position in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Paul can't help contain himself. By grace you have been saved. 
He'll say later, and we'll look at this next week in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. These are two of the most hope-filled words in the Bible. This is the hinge on which our salvation turns, taking us from a condition of death and despair to a position of life and freedom. It's understanding the bad news. Listen, this is why we spent so much time here. It's understanding the bad news that makes the good news so good. And here he describes our new position, and here's what he says. This is who you once were in your sin apart from God, but in Christ this is who you've become. And the first thing we see is this in verse 4. I am loved. I am loved. And get this, get this. You don't deserve to be. Nothing you did was lovely. But God being rich in mercy, God having compassion on us because of the reason. What's the reason? Why am I saved? Because of God's great love. Because of God's great love. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Not because of who we are, but because of who he is. He is merciful. He does not, mercy, mercy can be defined like this. God does not give us what we deserve. It's the flip side, the other side of the coin of God's grace. In mercy, God does not give us what we deserve, the punishment and the wrath, and instead he gives us what we don't deserve, his favor and his blessing. God here, he wants us to know and to be assured that he is intrinsically kind, merciful, and loving. And in his love, he reaches to the vile, sinful, rebellious, depraved, destitute, and condemned human beings, and he offers them salvation and all the eternal blessings it brings. Understanding our sinful condition helps us to appreciate this in a whole new way. And in this, listen, in understanding this, we're not deluded into thinking that God chose us because of some inherent or innate goodness in us. We don't flatter ourselves into thinking that we're saved because we made the first move to God. Look how smart we were to figure this out. This is intended. You say, why is this here? It is supposed to amaze us. It is supposed to leave us standing in utter shock and awe as we look at the riches of his mercy. I love that phrase. Rich in mercy. God has an unlimited surplus of mercy to pour out upon undeserving sinners. This is a helpful reminder if you're sitting here wrestling with your heart and saying, I'm, I'm pretty sinful. You have no clue what I've done. You don't know the kind of person I've been. You don't know the things I've done to other people. You don't know the destruction I've caused. You don't know the hurt and the pain I've caused. To that, God says to you, I am rich in mercy. And you are rich in sin, but your sin can never be richer and greater than my mercy. Your hatred and rebellion of me can never be greater than my great love and grace toward you. This is the great hope for the sinners. And there's no greater display of God's love and mercy than the cross of Jesus Christ, is there? He says, because on the crosses, and he says, because of my great love for you, your penalty has been paid. The wrath of God has been poured out upon Jesus Christ in your place. 
For his sake, I offer to you forgiveness. I lead you into repentance. I produce within you faith. You see, not only did he love enough to forgive, but he also loved enough to die for the very ones who had offended him. It was read earlier for us, but greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. Merciful love for those who do not deserve it makes salvation possible. God says, but because of my love, it's not just, it's not just that you are loved. Listen, I am living. Me, who was once spiritually dead, is now spiritually alive in Christ Jesus. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. We, spiritually speaking, were just like Lazarus. Dead, bound, lying in a tomb. And God called and gave us new life so that we could stand up and walk out of the tomb. No one can crawl out of a casket. You must be made alive. Erasmus argued with Luther that the important thing for a Christian was to keep the rules and to do one's duty. He wasn't arguing for merely external religion, so don't get the wrong idea. In fact, he urged his readers to be humbler, more charitable, self-controlled, etc. He wanted them to behave in the proper way. He wanted them to act righteously, but there was something missing in his theology of being alive in Christ. In all the rules he gave, in all the writings that he provided in response to Luther, behavior and character were what mattered most to Erasmus. He spoke nothing of a relationship with God. For Luther, however, this was the epitome of Christian life. This is what it meant to be alive in Christ. It was knowing God that mattered above all. The deep and growing intimacy of our communion and fellowship with him, it was a heart that loved God above all things, the very thing that was impossible in our spiritual deadness. He saw sin not just as a substandard behavior or some kind of a dereliction of a proper duty. To sin is to despise God, he said. The act of sin has its roots in the heart, as we've seen already, and it reveals that something other than God has become the true object of our heart's desire and adoration. Christian living, he said, is not primarily about acting humbly or charitably. These are merely the consequences of being truly alive. They are not the things that produce life. They are the results of true life. According to Jesus, this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. John 17, 3. It's by grace that you've been saved. You know, if you want to boil it all, all down to it, and you want to really have a good understanding of what it means to be saved, this is it. It is to be spiritually alive in God. God doesn't see us drowning and yell, swim. God sees us as already drowned at the bottom of the ocean. He dives in and he scoops us up and he brings us up to the surface and he doesn't shock life back into us. He creates new life in us. 
We were made with a purpose to love, glorify, and enjoy God forever. This is the reason God made you. But we cannot naturally love him until our hearts are brought to life and begin to spiritually beat with new affections for him. And we cannot produce those affections in our own effort and strength. They must be outside of us. They must be done for us by him. He must breathe life into these dead bones to raise us from the dead. In the same way that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, so too he takes us and he raises us back to newness of life. And to do so, he would himself suffer, he would himself die, and he would himself rise victorious so that we too might live in him. And this new life also means that we're no longer enslaved to sin. It means, too, that I am liberated. This, this is God's grace. I am loved. I am living. And I am liberated. No longer living under the deceptive, enslaving power of sin. I have been jailbroken, set free. I mean, consider the words he uses here in verse 6. These two really important words. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is a statement of the exaltation of Jesus Christ. The ascension, not only the resurrection, the ascension and ultimate seating of Christ at the right hand of the Father. You see, not only have we experienced a spiritual resurrection, but we also experience in Christ a spiritual exaltation. We too, in Christ, are raised and seated with him. What's true of Christ is true of us because we are in him. This is grace upon grace. His position of being seated, exalted to the right hand of the Father, demonstrates that he is the one with the power and the authority. He is the one who has victory over sin and death and Satan. Don't miss what our union with Christ means for the here and now. That Christ was raised and seated as a statement, yes, of his position and authority, but notice this, he has been given the name that is above every name. The God of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the one who once ruled and enslaved us has been defeated by the cross of Jesus Christ. He no longer wields the power over us that he once did. The cross, the resurrection, and the exaltation, they're all demonstrations of his defeat and the demonstration of the greater power of God's spirit that is now at work in the sons of obedience. He, by his power and grace alone, has set the captives free. Maybe today, listen, maybe today you don't feel free. Maybe you walked in here claiming the name of Jesus Christ, but you don't feel free. In fact, if you look at your life, it wouldn't appear that you're free. Maybe sin still has a stranglehold on your life. Maybe defeat feels and is in some ways very real in your life today. Maybe temptation and failure seem to define your life. Listen, loved ones, followers of Jesus Christ, I am very well acquainted with the struggle of Romans 7. I am very well acquainted with the feelings of failure. I'm very well acquainted with the knowledge of my failure, with the knowledge of my ongoing sin, with the persistent nature of temptation that sadly, to my shame, sometimes still trips me up when I fall flat on my face. I am very aware that though we are resurrected by grace, though we are raised and seated with him in the heavenly places, though the authority and power of sin and Satan are broken over our lives, we can still often live as if we are spiritually dead. 
let me encourage you this morning, listen, that you may still have sin present in your life, but sin no longer has you in its death grip. And the pathway to your ongoing experiential freedom starts with the understanding of the position of your freedom in Christ. It starts here in recognizing, listen, that you are loved, more loved than you could ever imagine. It starts here with going back to the reality that not only are you loved by God, but that you are living because of Him. His Spirit lives in you. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead lives in you, and that you are liberated. You are no longer under the bondage to sin that you once lived in. You live from victory to a life or excuse me, to live in new and increasing victory. There is hope for us today who struggle with sin as we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. But maybe maybe here you are struggling in this way. You feel distance from God. You feel like there is no relationship with God because that is the reality of where you are at with God. Maybe you've walked in here today and you're dead in your trespasses and sins and you have yet to be made alive in Jesus Christ. But listen, this day, this very moment can be the moment of your new birth. God, because of his great love, calls you with the thunderous sound of his grace. He calls into your tomb, come out right now this very day. Be raised to newness of life. The prison cell door is being flung open to you at this very moment. By grace, you may be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the cross. See him in your place. See him raising victorious from the death that he suffered for you. Confess the reality of your hopeless, sinful condition and rebellion against him. Turn this moment and be set free. For whom the Son sets free is free indeed. You can this very moment be changed for all of eternity. You can at this very moment, listen, don't, don't, don't miss this, by grace alone, be changed for all of eternity. See, we need grace alone so that God gets the glory alone. That's what this is all about. So why is this such a big deal that we understand that we don't play a part in this in terms of saving ourselves? It's so that we have no reason or grounds to boast. It's so that God ultimately gets all of the glory, all of the praise, all of the worship for all of eternity. Verse 7 really crystallizes this thought for us so that, this is the purpose, in the coming ages, that, that is from the moment you were saved, spanning into all of eternity, that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us. In Christ Jesus. God has done this, His grace alone, so that for all eternity He might put on display His glory. You see, grace magnifies His glory. That's why Paul calls it in chapter 1 His glorious grace. That's why Paul can add this refrain to the praise of His glory. You see, in raising and exalting Jesus, as we saw in chapter 1, God demonstrates the immeasurable greatness of his power. But in raising and exalting us, he displayed the immeasurable riches of his grace, and he will continue to do so for all of eternity. 
We are living evidences of his kindness, pointing people not to ourselves, but to him to whom we owe our salvation. So when somebody comes to you, whether it's here, now, or for all eternity in the presence of God and says, why did God save you? How did you get here? Your answer is this, grace alone. And then you turn and you worship your face off before the glory of God alone. You see, when we truly understand God's grace alone is responsible for our salvation, we will thank God that he came to our tomb when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And he cried out to us, come out. We will thank him for giving us new life for turning our wills from evil, for granting us faith and repentance, for bringing us out of the tomb and loosing us from the burial clothes in which we were bound. If we walked out of the tomb, it was not because of any power or ability in us. It was solely because of God's grace alone. And when we grasp this, along with the reformers and countless of others before and after We will praise him with all of our might for all of eternity. Our anthem will be all glory to God alone.